Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by ExpressVPN. Going online without ExpressVPN is like using your smartphone without a protective case. I hope everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving meal, which according to Forbes and CNN is 20% more expensive than the same meal a year ago Thanksgiving. But it's not just a meal that costs a lot more. It's everything else. What about just getting to your Thanksgiving meal, whether you have to drive there or fly there? Transportation costs are way up. But what adds to the misery for typical American families is not only do they have to spend more money for Thanksgiving, But because everything else costs more, they have less money left over to spend on Thanksgiving. So everybody is cutting back. This is all the consequence of paying the inflation tax. Again, why does everything cost more? Because the government spends more. But they didn't raise taxes to pay for that spending because the government didn't want the voters to know that all the stuff they were getting from government they had to pay for. They wanted to pretend they could get it for nothing or that somehow the rich would pay for it. But the rich aren't paying for it. The middle class and the working poor are paying for it, but they're not paying for it honestly through increased legitimate taxes. They are paying for it dishonestly through the inflation tax. But the main reason the government loves to pay for stuff with the inflation tax is because it never accepts responsibility for levying that tax. Instead, it blames it on other factors like greedy businessmen gouging their customers 
or Vladimir Putin or OPEC or any other convenient scapegoat. And then what does government do? Government says, oh, now we need more laws and more regulations to protect the public from inflation. Government is the source of all this inflation, yet the government uses the inflation it creates as a springboard to even more government power. I spent my Thanksgiving this year in Dubai. In fact, I am recording today's podcast in my hotel room. It's early Friday afternoon, which means it's extremely early morning back on the East Coast of the United States. This is Black Friday, the day that officially kicks off the holiday shopping season where Americans are supposed to go out and buy stuff. And this is considered economic activity in the United States. The fact that we go out and buy things, most of the stuff that Americans buy for Christmas, we didn't make. All this stuff is imported, and so it's only possible because of the economic growth outside the United States, not inside the United States. All we're doing is creating money, and we're exporting our inflation to the rest of the world in exchange for their goods. I want to talk a little bit about Dubai and use it as an example of what capitalism can create, because Dubai is one of the most prosperous cities in the world. And the reason for its prosperity is not because of its resources. It's not like Dubai is sitting on a bunch of oil like Abu Dhabi is. There's really no oil here. In fact, Dubai doesn't have anything other than a port as far as natural resources are concerned. In fact, there's no real natural beauty here at all. It's just flat desert as far as the eye can see. It's not even like the deserts in the United States like Arizona or Nevada, where they have beautiful mountains, and it's just naturally pretty, even in a desert landscape. There's nothing like that here in Dubai, but it is extremely beautiful here, not because of nature, but because of man. And the beauty is what man has constructed. The skyscrapers here are magnificent in their architecture, and when they are particularly beautiful is at night because this city lights up and it is really spectacular. And it just shows you what man can do. And the reason that the people of Dubai were able to achieve so much with so little in the way of natural resources was they had maximum economic freedom. Now, is this place a complete bastion of economic freedom? No, there are some restrictions on freedom here, but in the scheme of things, relative to the amount of restrictions that take place in other areas, Dubai is one of the leaders in economic freedom and in free trade. In fact, what brought me to Dubai was speaking at a gold conference hosted by the DMCC, which is a specific free trade zone within Dubai, which consists of about 21,000 businesses that have already moved here, employing better than 100,000 people, and more businesses are relocating or being established in Dubai every day. And they are coming here because of economic freedom. If you have a business in this tax-free zone, you pay no corporate income tax, you pay no personal income tax, there are no duties here, which really puts businesses that are domiciled here at a competitive advantage to businesses domiciled almost anywhere else. And also 
the type of people that move here. And I've met a lot of people since I've been here. And it's not my first trip to Dubai, but I haven't been here in quite some time. The last time I was here was in 2009. I spoke at a conference in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And then from Riyadh, I came to Dubai, really just on vacation to check the place out because I had never been here. This is the first time I came out specifically to come to Dubai. And of course, there are so many more buildings than were here last time. The city is growing dramatically. Not only do they have the tallest building in the world here in Dubai, the Burj Khalifa, but they have so many other buildings as well that would look tall, but for their proximity to the Burj Khalifa. That's the only reason that they appear small because this building is huge. I don't know if it's quite 150 stories high, I went up to the observation deck, which was on the 120th story. And when I looked up, it seemed like there was a brand new skyscraper above my head. That's how big this building actually is. But even more impressive than the size of the buildings, I think, was the architecture and the quality of the construction of some of these buildings that I went through and just the whole area. In fact, they filmed the most recent Star Trek movie here because they were looking for a city that looked like it was from the 23rd or 24th century, whenever Star Trek is supposed to take place. And that's why they picked Dubai, because it looks so modern. There really is nothing like it in the United States. But what's really incredible about the city, again, are the people who have relocated here from all around the world. It's a very European city. Sure, it's in the heart of Arabia, but you have this huge melting pot of people who have come here in search of a common goal, which is economic freedom. That's what they care about. They don't care about democracy. They don't care about whether or not they can vote. What they care about is does the government leave them alone? Are they free to conduct their business the way they see fit and to maximize their own economic benefit? And they are, and so they come here by the thousands, and it makes for a very exciting population, not only as a place to work, but as a place to live, as a place to socialize. There are a lot of people who are bringing young families and raising their children here in Dubai. I imagine it's kind of like the environment that the United States had 100, 200 years earlier, when so many people were leaving Europe in search of economic freedom, and they found it in the United States. You don't find that in the United States anymore. You can find that here. It's interesting too. I talk a lot about the minimum wage. Dubai does not have a minimum wage, but it's not like people here are being exploited. In fact, lots of people are coming to Dubai looking for jobs. They're not just coming to start businesses. They're coming to work for the businesses that other people start. They're not coming here to be exploited. They're coming here from opportunity, but they're not exploited because of competition. You don't need government protecting workers with a minimum wage. You need government getting out of the way because what protects workers is a competitive market where you have lots of employers competing for workers, and that's exactly what you have in Dubai. Your data is valuable. Just fire up the app and click one button. Visit expressvpn.com gold, and you'll get an extra three months free. Can we talk about notifications for a second? Who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? 
Well, besides that kind, that's the sound of another sale happening on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps on growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere, whether your thing is vintage teas or recipe for ghee. Start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you will too. And when you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, do it with Shopify. The commerce platform backing millions of businesses, down the street and around the globe. This is a possibility powered by Shopify. And I love how Shopify makes selling so simple and makes it so easy for you to put your ideas out there. Whether your thing is eBooks or earrings, Shopify makes your success possible. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. Shopify makes it easier for just about anybody to successfully run a small business. And now it's never been easier to start and grow a business thanks to Shopify. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling any Anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash gold. Go to shopify.com slash gold to start selling online today. That's shopify.com slash gold. I mentioned about the holiday Black Friday where Americans are out there shopping. The problem with Americans is we're consuming and not producing. And nowhere is that more evident than when you look at the ports. Because I mentioned that one of the things that Dubai has as an economic advantage is where it's located. And they're able to have a port. They have several ports, but their largest port is the 11th largest port in the world. And the reason that this port does so much business, it's not that Dubai is manufacturing so much stuff that it's exporting. What Dubai does is it imports and then re-exports a lot of stuff because of how efficiently it operates and because of the lack of duties. For example, they import a lot of coffee and tea that are grown all around the world, not grown here in Dubai, but they import the coffee and tea and then they package it up and then they re-export it to other places all around the world. But I thought I would take a look just to put this in perspective when it comes to ports. Of the top 10 ports in the world, China has the number one port and it has six of the top 10 ports in the world. And it has 16 of the top 50 ports. The top port in the United States ranks number 17. And America only has four of the top 50 ports. Yes, the population of China is a little over four times greater than the population of the United States. And so they roughly have four times the number of ports that we have in the top 50, but they have six ports in the top 10, and we don't even have one. Plus, even though China has a huge population, the per capita income in America dwarfs the per capita income in China. You would expect a lot more ports in proportion to the population here in the United States than they have in China. And that's not true. And the main problem is when it comes to ports in America, it's one-way traffic because stuff comes in but the containers leave empty. And so there's a lot of trade that doesn't take place. Whereas in China, not only does China import a lot, 
but it exports a lot. And so the volume of the trade is much greater. But if you think about what Dubai has achieved by having the number 11 port in the world, six notches above the largest port in the United States, is that the entire population of the United Arab Emirates, so this is not just Dubai, it's Abu Dhabi and all the other Emirates combined. The total population is just 10 million people. Yet those 10 million people have the number 11 port in the world. The United States is 30 times larger than the Emirates. So on a per capita basis, the people living here in the Emirates, particularly in Dubai, dramatically outtrade the people in the United States. And why are the people living here so much more productive than the people living in the United States? Because they have a lot less government regulation and taxation getting in their way. And so the result of that is incredible prosperity. So if you do have a business or you want to start one and you're looking for a place to relocate, I think you should take a look at what's happening here in the DMCC. You know, I relocated my business and my family to Puerto Rico. But I think the Emirates offers a far more attractive package than what's available in Puerto Rico. The problem, though, for Americans is that while people from pretty much every other country in the world can move to Dubai without having to renounce their citizenship and enjoy all of the benefits of zero taxes, Americans cannot take advantage of the same opportunity because of the American citizenship. Even if Americans relocate to Dubai and are free from local personal and corporate income taxes, they still are responsible for paying U.S. income taxes, even though they're not working or living in the United States. That's why, from my perspective, my opportunities were dramatically limited. I couldn't consider Dubai and still keep my U.S. citizenship, so I'm living in Puerto Rico. But Puerto Rico would have a much more vibrant economy with a much higher standard of living for everybody if overall Puerto Ricans enjoyed the same type of economic freedom as the people living here in Dubai. Now, of course, Puerto Rico is a democracy. The Puerto Ricans get to go to the polls and vote for their leaders, something that doesn't happen in Dubai. But therein lies the problem. Because Puerto Rican politicians have to constantly get reelected, the whole system is very corrupt. And you have to fool the voters into voting for you. So you have to do all sorts of foolish things in order to get elected because voters don't realize how foolish the things they are voting for are. They don't understand how expensive all the stuff is that they get from government. That doesn't happen here in Dubai. Then the leaders don't have to pursue these foolish policies to get reelected. They can do what's right for the people and the local economy instead of just doing what's right for themselves and their political ambitions. But getting back to the United States, the markets are trading for an abbreviated session today on Good Friday, although I am recording my podcast long before they ring the opening bell. So I don't really know what happened on Friday. So I am going to talk a little bit about what happened in the markets as of the close on Wednesday which is the last day the market traded before the Thanksgiving holiday. Also, we got some more economic news that came out on Wednesday. In particular, we got the weekly jobless claims, which spiked up to 240,000. The expectation was for a smaller increase 
from 223,000 to 225,000. So maybe this is the beginning of what will turn out to be a major increase in unemployment. This has been long overdue, and I've been expecting this to start, and maybe it already has. We'll see. Also, we got the PMI flash composite index for November. Very disappointing if you think the U.S. economy is not in recession. The prior number was 48.2, and the November number dropped all the way down to 46.3. If you break it out into its components, manufacturing was supposed to decline slightly from 50.4 to 50. Instead, it tanked all the way down to 47.6. That's below even the lowest estimate in the range, which went from a low of 49.5 to a high of 50.4. The same disappointing news in the service sector, which was already weak in the prior month. It was at 47.8. It was supposed to slightly improve to 48. Instead, it went in the other direction, falling all the way down to 46.1. Again, that is below the low end of the consensus range, which went from a low of 47.3 to a high of 49.3. So again, these numbers are indicative of not just an economy headed for recession, an economy that already is in recession. But I think the biggest market moving news of the day and of the week was the release of the Federal Open Market Committee minutes. And those minutes were received by the markets as being dovish. Now, what is the difference between dovish minutes and hawkish minutes? Well, from the perspective of the market, whenever federal open market committee participants talk about raising rates less, raising them in smaller increments, or maybe not raising them as much in the future, it's perceived as being dovish. After all, they're adopting language that implies that something will be easier in the future than it is right now. So whenever the Fed talks about how they have to raise rates more, how they have to raise them quicker, or how they have to raise them higher, well, that is hawkish. And what the stock market is looking for is any signs of dovishness, even if they already expect those signs. Just confirmation is what the markets react to. Maybe a lot of it is program trading and algorithms where they're looking for these key words. And the minute they think, oh, rates are going to rise a little bit less than we thought, because many people on the Federal Open Market Committee were talking about the need to slow down and to reassess and that maybe we can't keep hiking interest rates by 75 basis points at a clip. Maybe we should move a little slower and give the markets a little more time to react to the hikes that we've already put in place, acknowledging the fact that there's a lag. So whenever the markets get that type of rhetoric from the Fed, the traders seize on it. And that's why you had the rally in the stock market. But more important than the reaction in the stock market is the reaction in the currency market. The dollar got hit hard on Wednesday. And in fact, it's falling again here on Friday morning. The dollar index is back with a 105 handle. It's 105 spot 85, getting very close to falling below 105. I think a close below 105 would be technically significant, although I'm not really sure we even need that at this point. I think we have enough evidence to say that the high in the dollar is in. 
the dollar index almost got to 115, and now we're back below 106. So that is a significant decline, and I expect the decline to accelerate, especially after we close below 105. Then I think we could really start seeing a weakening dollar, which again is going to be very problematic for the Fed because the weakening dollar is going to put more upward pressure on inflation. And ironically, of course, the reason the dollar is weakening is because the markets think that the Fed is winning its fight against inflation, and so it won't have to fight as hard in the future. And that is removing the supports from beneath the dollar, causing the dollar to tank. And now the very inflation that the markets thought the Fed was making progress in fighting is actually going to get worse. So the Fed will be a victim of its own success when it comes to inflation. But when the markets perceive this, I think it's really going to accelerate the movement out of U.S. dollars and into alternatives. In fact, if you look at what's happening in the stock market itself, it's exactly what I've been forecasting with respect to the continued rotation out of momentum into value. I've been repeatedly saying that this next move up in the stock market is not going to be led by the leadership of the bubble, that these tech stocks, companies that don't earn any money are not going to be leading the way. It's going to be value. It's going to be dividend-oriented stocks that are going to be the leaders in the next move up in the market. And in fact, not all stocks are going to move up. A lot of these money-losing companies are going to go down in an environment of high and rising inflation and rising long-term interest rates. And if you just look at the rallies that we've had to date in the U.S. stock market indexes, the Nasdaq Composite and the Russell 2000 are the laggers. The Nasdaq is moved up 13.4% from the lows and the Russell 2000, 13.5%, even though these indexes have had much bigger drops from their highs than the declines we saw in the S&P and the Dow. Yet the S&P has rallied 15.4% off its lows and the Dow Jones, 19.3%. And the reason the S&P is lagging the Dow is because you have more of the tech names in the S&P. And so the Dow has more value and dividend paying stocks than the S&P. And that's why it's outperforming. But if you really want to look at some outperformance, look at the gold and silver mining stocks. The GDX is up 33.4% from its September low. The GDXJ, the junior mining stocks, is doing even better. That index is up 38.3% from its September low. And remember, these are the closes as of Wednesday. I don't know what they're going to do in today's session, but these are pretty big moves. In fact, these indexes are now at five-month highs. You got to go all the way back to June to see these indexes trading at this level. And I think what's very technically significant is the fact that these indexes have taken out the August highs. And I think there's a long way to go. This really is a stealth bull market in these mining stocks. Nobody is talking about a near 40% move up in junior gold mining stocks. Sure, a lot of people are pointing to the move up in the NASDAQ, which is a third of this move. This move is happening in obscurity, which, as far as I'm concerned, is great for the bulls. I don't want anybody talking about the rally in gold stocks. I don't want anybody buying gold stocks. I think what's probably going to happen is gold stocks 
are going to double, maybe triple off their lows before the mainstream media even starts talking about the rise. And of course, when they start talking about it, they may look at it skeptically. It may take an even bigger increase before they get on board. But that's why I recommend that people not wait for investing in gold stocks to become all the rage, invest in this sector long before then, because that's when you can buy the stocks cheap. Because in order to buy something cheap, you can't be in competition with a lot of other people, because when you have lots of buyers, they bid up the price, and then the price isn't cheap. But when you don't have a lot of buyers, when you still have sellers, that's when you can get a bargain. And there are bargains galore, despite this near 40% rise in the junior mining sector, these stocks are still very cheap. Going online without using ExpressVPN is like using your smartphone without a protective case. Sure, most of the time you're probably fine, but all it takes is one accidental drop onto solid concrete to make you wish you had protected yourself. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, etc., your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, passwords, financial data, etc. And it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is all you need. Even a smart 12-year-old could do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal information on the dark web. But when you use ExpressVPN, it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. Just fire up the app and click one button and get protected. And it works on all your devices, phones, laptops, tablets, allowing you to stay secure even when you're on the go. And the only way I can access key information online is by using ExpressVPN. In fact, if I want to make calls on WhatsApp, the only way I can do it is using the ExpressVPN. Without ExpressVPN, I wouldn't be able to call for free using WhatsApp. I'd be paying expensive fees for international roaming. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com gold. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com gold. And you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com gold. And again, I think the best way for most people to participate in this particular sector would be through my fund the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund managed by Adrian Day. And in fact, at one point, that fund had five stars, but we've fallen behind in the last year or so, specifically because of some of our junior mining positions that have been beaten up pretty hard. The Morningstar rating on our fund has gone from five stars down to two stars, but I think that is an excellent opportunity to get on board and buy this fund before it moves back up to five stars because I have all the confidence in the world in Adrian Day and his stock picking ability. And I think the fact that we're underperforming now is simply a function of the market we've been in. But I think our portfolio is poised for some spectacular outperformance. Of course, it doesn't come without risk, but you're not going to get reward unless you take risk. And if you look at some of my other funds, for example, my dividend payers fund, a year or two ago, only had one star in Morningstar, and now it has five stars. In fact, it's in the top 1% of all of the funds that Morningstar tracks in its category year to date, 
And there's over 300 different funds in the category. And I think we're actually number one. I'm not sure. I know we're in the top 1%, but my gut is that we're the number one fund of the entire category. And the same thing happened to my value fund. That fund had one star, but now it's got five stars year to date for the past three years, for the past five years. In fact, it's in the top 1% over the past three years. But the best time to have bought the fund was when it only had one star because then it improved because it had one star because it had underperformed for a while, but that left it poised to outperform. And now it's got the five stars. A similar thing happened to my bond fund. The Europe Pacific bond fund had just one star a year ago. Now it has four stars. I think by next year, it's going to have five stars. These funds were positioned to take advantage of a shift in the market that I had been anticipating. And I think we're still early in that shift. And so I think the outperformance of my funds that has just started recently is going to continue for many years. And so I think the same thing is going to happen to the gold fund. We were on top for a while. We lost some ground. I expect that we'll be on top again. But in the meantime, that provides an excellent entry point for people who are not invested in the fund to take a position for people who already have money in my gold fund to buy more. And of course, if you're a larger investor, we also do separately managed accounts. Adrian Day manages those accounts on an individual basis. So if you don't want to be in a fund, if you want to have your own account, but also have it managed individually by Adrian, you can set up that account with your Pacific Asset Management as well. And by the way, it's not just the mining stocks that are going up, it's the metals themselves. So far off the lows, gold is up 8.3% and silver is up 22%. But I want to finish up today's podcast by once again addressing all of the calls for additional government regulation in the wake of the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX collapse, gigantic fraud, Ponzi scheme. You have everybody saying this proves that we need more government regulation. And if we only had more government regulation, we wouldn't have this type of fraud taking place. This is all complete nonsense. The last thing we need is more U.S. government regulation. We already have more government regulation than we've ever had in the past because we keep getting more regulation piled on top of the existing regulations, yet the frauds continue. In fact, they get bigger. A lot of people don't even realize, but the SEC wasn't established until 1934. The New York Stock Exchange started in 1792. So we went 142 years without even having a Securities and Exchange Commission. We had a stock market, people invested, but they did so at their own risk. We had no protection from the U.S. government whatsoever but investors were protected by the market. And the free market offers much better protection than does government regulation. In fact, what happened to the U.S. economy during those 142 years where we had no SEC? Well, we had massive prosperity. We had the Industrial Revolution, the most prosperous period of time in American history, known as the Gilded Age, really spanned from the end of the Civil War to the beginning of the First World War. And during that time period, we had no SEC. In fact, we had no Federal Reserve and all the additional regulations that the Fed 
has layered into the economy. So when we had more freedom, we had more prosperity. Did we have fraud and con men in investments before the SEC? Of course. Charles Ponzi himself, the very guy that the Ponzi scheme is named after, he ran his scheme in 1920. But the interesting thing about the Ponzi scheme is that the whole thing collapsed in about eight months. Charles Ponzi started his company in January of 1920. Ironically enough, the name of Ponzi's company was the Securities Exchange Company, SEC. Maybe that was a premonition of what was to come, but the entire scheme collapsed by August of the same year. The newspapers ferreted it out. They wrote stories pointing out the fraud, and then the free market brought it to a close. And Charles Ponzi eventually went to jail, but the government didn't step in until after the fact and punished him for his fraud. Now, there were some losers, of course, in the market. Several small banks that had been financing Ponzi, they went under. None of them got bailed out, and investors lost money. There was about $20 million in total losses, which in today's dollars may be equal to $200 million, maybe a little bit more. That's nothing. That pales in comparison to the $18 billion that was lost under Madoff. That's 50 times bigger than the losses from Ponzi himself, and Madoff carried off his scheme right under the nose of the SEC. In fact, Madoff had another regulator, the National Association of Security Dealers, which is now known as FINRA. They changed the name, I think it was 2007, but the NASD got started in 1971. So this was another level of regulation. And Bernie Madoff was a FINRA member. And so he was regulated not only by FINRA, but by the SEC. Of course, I'm regulated by both. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that none of these government regulators are protecting the public. In fact, it's just the opposite. I think there are more losses. There are more frauds as a consequence of all this government regulation than there would be in the absence of any of this government regulation, because there would be a lot more personal responsibility if investors didn't just abrogate that to the United States government. And I think there really would be some self-regulatory bodies that existed in a free market. For example, I am required by law to be a member of FINRA. I don't have a choice. If you want to be a stockbroker in the United States, you must be a member of FINRA and abide by its rules. Now, if membership was voluntary, then I think it might be a positive thing. But because it's mandatory and everybody has to join, FINRA is more like a government agency than a creature of the free market. If people voluntarily could be members and if the investing public was free to choose, if you want to work with a broker who's a member of FINRA and has their good housekeeping seal of approval, you can. But if you want to work with a stockbroker who is not a member of FINRA, well, you have that right. In America, you don't have that right. You only can work with a stockbroker who is a member of FINRA, because if you are a stockbroker and you're not a member of FINRA, you're going to be put out of business. You are not allowed to work in that industry. So it's a government-created cartel. And a lot of these type of 
trade associations were initially started for the right reasons to try to create a collection of companies or tradesmen that all met common standards so that the public would know that if a particular business was part of this association, that it met these standards. And so it would create a sense of confidence in the company. But what would always happen is that these individuals would try to figure out, hey, how can we make more money? How can we restrict competition so we can charge more? They would go to government and they would try to lobby government to get them to require membership in this organization in order to practice a particular occupation or a particular craft. And then the minute the government required membership via this license, now they were able to exclude people. And now the people who had the license could make more money. And so it's government that comes in. And in fact, all of these government regulatory bodies always get corrupted and captured by the industries that they regulate. And the industries end up using these government rules as barriers to entry, ways to keep out competition and charge more money. And so what ends up happening is the public ends up overpaying for services to a much greater degree than they would have lost money had they been the victim of some type of fraud. And of course, I think there's a lot more fraud when the government is in charge because politicians can get bribed. They don't give a damn. But in the free market, you have competition for reputation, not just for individual companies, but rating agencies, consumer reports. There are all sorts of businesses that make a living and have a reputation for rendering opinions on other businesses that consumers can consult with before they utilize the services of those businesses. But in today's day and age where you have the internet, it's so much easier now for consumers to do some due diligence before they buy from a particular vendor or hire a particular individual or company to provide a service to them. It's so much easier today to check up on somebody's reputation, on the experience that other customers have had, that there's even less need for government regulation today than there was 100 years ago, even though there was no need for it back then. But clearly, there's even less need now. That is particularly true in banking. All the banking laws that we have also came about during the 1930s. It was all part of FDR's New Deal. That's why we have an SEC. If we didn't have a Great Depression, we never would have had a New Deal and we never would have had an SEC. We didn't need the SEC. It was part of the overreaction. It was part of the power grab by the government under FDR and all sorts of welfare programs were rolled out during that time period that have collectively made the United States a lot less free and a lot less prosperous. And so the last thing we need to do is emulate the mistakes that we made during the 1930s by layering on even more government regulation than we have now. We have the SEC, we have FINRA, we have the FDIC, which again, we didn't have that until the Great Depression. Prior to the Great Depression, Americans shopped around before they deposited money in a bank because they knew if the bank failed, they could lose their deposits. And so they only wanted to deposit money in banks that had good reputations. 
But today, nobody shops around. Nobody looks into the reputation of any bank because the government guarantees every bank account. So that's a moral hazard. As long as customers don't care how much risk the bank takes because the government's going to make them whole, well, now the banks are motivated to take on more risk because their depositors don't give a damn. But in a free market where depositors were worried about risks, then banks that had less risk would attract more customers. But today, no bank is punished for taking a lot of risk because the government is subsidizing those risks and telling all depositors, it doesn't matter where you put your money. And so most people do more research into which TV set to buy than they do about which bank to use. All they care about are what the fees are. What am I charged for my checks? How many ATM machines are there? No one gives a damn about how safe the bank is. And of course, even if individuals weren't smart enough to do the research on their own, there would be all sorts of companies that would rate banks and would make that information available to consumers. But there's no reason to do that because the government has all these banks insured. And that's why the banks are so much more leveraged right now than they were back then. That's why the whole financial system is so much more fragile now than it was then. And of course, the other reason that investors behave so foolishly with respect to Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, and the reason they typically react foolishly the way they did during the dot-com mania or during the housing bubble was because of the Federal Reserve. We don't need more government. We need less government. We need more free market capitalism. We need sound money. Do you think that people would have acted this foolishly if they weren't drunk on all that Fed cheap money? If we had real interest rates instead of 0% interest rates, if we didn't have quantitative easing, do you think so many otherwise smart people would have given money to this kid who was such an obvious fraud? Of course not. They never would have done it but for the casino-like environment created by the Federal Reserve. So this is not an example of why we need more government. This is proof that we already have too much government and we need less. And as a matter of fact, the Great Depression that we had during the 1930s was caused by the U.S. government. So the government caused the stock market bubble that happened in the 1920s. Then the government caused the depression that followed in the 1930s. And then they used the stock market bubble and the ensuing depression as a catalyst to greatly expand government, including the creation of the SEC. The depression that we had during the 1930s was the first time we actually employed all of the weapons in the Keynesian arsenal that are supposedly what you need to fight off a recession, and we created a depression. Because if you go back to 1920, which was before this fiscal policy was adopted, and look at the major economic downturn that began in 1920, which, by the way, was also a consequence of the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve expanded the money supply rather significantly to help pay for the First World War. And in fact, they had to amend the Federal Reserve Charter, because the Federal Reserve was started in 1913. But based on the original charter, the Federal Reserve was not even allowed to buy U.S. government bonds. So they amended the Federal Reserve Act to make it easier for the federal government to borrow money 
to pay for World War I because they could borrow from the Federal Reserve and not have to rely on the public. In fact, that's also when we got the first debt limit because Congress recognized the inherent problem in allowing the Federal Reserve to buy U.S. government debt. So they enacted a debt ceiling so that the government couldn't take advantage of that and run up the debt too much. The problem was they've raised the ceiling every time we've hit it, and now we have more than $31 trillion in debt. But you can thank the Federal Reserve for that too. But my point is that the newly created Federal Reserve printed too much money. And so when they had to start withdrawing some of that cash and put on the brakes, we got a big collapse in 1920. And by the way, in 1918, 1919, we also had the Spanish flu, which was the last pandemic that we really had prior to COVID. So we were dealing with a war and a pandemic, and we had a massive contraction in the economy. The stock market crashed by about 50%. But what was the government's reaction to this massive economic and market collapse? The response was the opposite of what we do now. The government cut spending during that collapse. There were no bailouts. There were no stimulus. And the unemployment rate, which had initially spiked way up, it rose to better than 12%. Within a couple of years, it was back down below 4%. And that happened not only with the government doing nothing, but the government doing the opposite of what the governments do today. And that's why nobody ever heard of the Depression of 1920, because we didn't have a depression in 1920, because the government didn't try to stimulate the economy or bail anybody out. Had they done it, then the depression would have started then, because the collapse that we had in 1920 was every bit as large as the one that we had in 1929, except the 1929 collapse was followed by Herbert Hoover. And contrary to what the Keynesians want you to believe, Herbert Hoover was not a do-nothing president who allowed the free market to liquidate all the malinvestments made during the boom. He was the first president to dramatically intervene in the markets. There were huge increases in government spending. Where do you think we got the Hoover Dam? In fact, he ran enormous budget deficits to stimulate the economy. When Franklin Roosevelt initially ran against Hoover, he campaigned against the Hoover deficits. He promised to balance the budget. Of course, when FDR became president, he simply expanded all of the failed policies of Hoover, and he made that depression great. In fact, one of the worst things that Hoover did, in addition to all the bailouts and spending, was that Hoover decided, based on the bad advice from his economists, that the important thing to keep an economy growing was the demand that was a function of wages. And so they thought that if companies cut wages, it would hurt the economy. So there was a lot of political pressure brought on by the bully pulpit of the Hoover administration for companies not to lower wages. But of course, prices were collapsing across the board. So as a result of that foolish policy, real wages were soaring. And that's what resulted in massive layoffs. Rather than cutting wages, companies cut workers. They should have cut wages. That would have been fine. But instead, we had massive unemployment. That was a consequence of that foolish policy. But the other important factor is that the stock market bubble that we had in the latter part of the 1920s was the fault of the Fed. You see, after we had the depression that wasn't of 2020 and the government did nothing but act fiscally responsibly 
to remove the burdens that government places on the economy to make it easier for a legitimate recovery to take place, that gave birth to the roaring 1920s. But what made the end of the 1920s go from just a boom to a mania was the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, through an excessive increase in money supply and an artificial reduction in interest rates, turned that bull market into a mania and laid the foundation for the bust when the Federal Reserve ultimately tried to correct its mistakes. But rather than going over that myself, what I would like to do is read something that Alan Greenspan wrote back in 1967. This is in an essay called Gold and Economic Freedom. And I first read this as a kid when I read Ayn Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. And that is an excellent book that I would recommend anybody read. But I just want to read a passage from that excellent essay. You could just read this essay. It's online. But this is how Alan Greenspan, who ultimately became Fed chairman and who repeated all of the mistakes that he correctly called out the Fed for making in his contribution to creating that stock market bubble and ushering in the Great Depression. So I'm just going to read directly from Alan Greenspan's writing. Quote, when business in the United States underwent a mild contraction in 1927, the Federal Reserve created more paper reserves in the hope of forestalling any possible bank reserve shortages. More disastrous, however, was the Federal Reserve's attempt to assist Great Britain, who had been losing gold to us because the Bank of England refused to allow interest rates to rise when market forces dictated. It was politically unpalatable. The reasoning of the authorities involved was as follows. If the Federal Reserve pumped excessive paper reserves into American banks, interest rates in the United States would fall to a level comparable to those in Great Britain. This would act to stop Britain's gold loss and avoid the political embarrassment of having to raise interest rates. The Fed succeeded. It stopped the gold loss, but it nearly destroyed the economies of the world in the process. The excess credit, which the Fed pumped into the economy, spilled over into the stock market, triggering a fantastic speculative boom. Belatedly, Federal Reserve officials attempted to sop up the excess reserves and finally succeeded in breaking the boom. But it was too late. By 1929, the speculative imbalances had become so overwhelming that the attempt participated a sharp retrenchment and a consequent demoralization of business confidence. As a result, the American economy collapsed. Great Britain fared even worse, and rather than absorb the full consequences of her previous folly, she abandoned the gold standard completely in 1931, tearing asunder what remained of the fabric of confidence and inducing a worldwide series of bank failures. The world's economies plunged into the Great Depression of the 1930s. Does any of this sound familiar? Of course. This is exactly what the Fed did to create the dot-com bubble. It's exactly what they did even more of to create the housing bubble and exactly what they did in a massive scale to create the current bubble, which is now in the process of deflating. But unfortunately, the Federal Reserve has learned nothing from its mistakes of the past and is therefore bound to repeat even greater mistakes in the future.